0: This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hey, folks welcome along to another episode of the money mechanics podcast where we are looking under the hood and unpacking the money stuff uh, today i'm probably having another bit of a, a fanboy moment i'm joined by carl richards who is a certified financial planner but also a sketcher um, has a, a column in the new york times and makes some of the the more complex financial planning and finance concepts really easy to digest. So welcome along, Carl. Great to have you here today. Thanks, Scott. Super excited for this chat. Fantastic. And we're just having a chat before we jumped on. And we've been asking all our our guests, I guess, about some early money memories. So mm. I actually did some training with George Kinder probably about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And in his his book, The Seven Stages of Money Maturity, one of the questions he asks is, What's one of your early happy or joyous money memories? So we've been asking all our guests if they've got a, a happy or joyous money memory to share.
1: Wow, that's actually a fascinating. Question. I've read that book. It's been long enough that I I didn't remember that question. Um, Happy or joyous money experience. That's fascinating to me that I can't think of. I can think about a lot of happy experiences that were funded via dollars, right? Especially times that I spent outside, the time that my mom helped me buy a ski pass to a resort here called Snowbird a season ski pass like that. That's I, but I don't have any, like, here's a pool of money, go spend it experiences, but more uh, memories, but more memories that were funded via dollars. Like that ski pass is one thing that comes up for sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, and for our listeners, Carl's actually based in Utah. And before we jumped on the podcast, I was uh, reminiscing of a, a camping trip I actually did across the US with one of my best mates in the early 2000s. And we were fortunate enough to go to Zion National Park and we hiked up uh, Angels Landing, I think it's called. And it was just one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in travel or in life. So uh, yeah, you, you do live in one of the, the best parts of the world, Carl.
1: Yeah, I know it is great. And Angels Landing is a classic for sure.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. I guess on to the topic today, and you do make, I guess, some of those financial concepts easy to understand. And I think somewhere in a bio, you're the man with the Sharpie or, or something to that uh, effect. But how did you get into sketching or, or where'd that, that come about?
1: So maybe for the listeners, like the sketches, you you can see those in the New York Times column. I do one, I, I did one a week for 10 years for them. And they're just really simple you know, it's like a box and an arrow and a circle, you know, or a Venn diagram or a bar chart or a graph. And the way they started was really out of an act of desperation. I had I was running a financial planning firm, and I had two clients in a couple. Their name were Dave and Diane, and they were really smart, successful people. And so this wasn't their fault, but we were in the middle of a meeting, and I was trying to describe, I was trying to explain a concept that I thought was really important for them to understand in order to make a decision that we were trying to make. And what wasn't their fault was the fact that I wasn't doing a very good job explaining it. I just kept getting blank stares back. And so out of an act of desperation, once I just jumped up, there was a whiteboard in the conference room I was using. I'd never used it. I jumped up and drew it like a, a box and a square and a circle with an arrow to it or something. And I remember they were like, Oh, we get it now. And that sort of moment, it was, it was like, I, I, don't, I didn't make a grand declaration about it at the time but i just remember being like oh that's interesting if i could take these things and these concepts and make them a little easier to understand because of a simple visual that would be amazing so that's what started the this sort of addiction to drawing these things out
0: yeah wow what a, what an aha moment people have responded in a great way. I mean, again, you had a column in the New York Times. I guess that's a pretty amazing achievement or accomplishment on that. So how did people respond to that when you started using the more visual uh, explanations as well? Yeah,
1: so I got just enough positive response to keep doing it. Again, there was no, and I think this is important for listeners to understand, that there was no grand plan. Like I, I would have never dared even make a goal of, publishing a book. Like I would have never thought that I just did it once. And then there was enough encouragement to do it again. And that continued. So there continues to be enough encouragement to keep doing it. So that's the response they've gotten. I mean, it's been really gratifying and super fun, super fun journey
0: fantastic and look I guess current market at the moment we are seeing a lot of probably anxiety and and I've seen a couple of your great sketches around market volatility and market movement market anxiety market risk but today I wanted to probably just do a bit of an unpack into the thinking that that pain and loss I guess people who have been in the market so I started as a financial planner in 2001 so I've uh, I lived through the the global financial crisis um, I'm now uh, sort of helping clients now Navigate the current market adjustments that are happening at the moment but I guess yeah what what are your insights I guess from the sketching from your, your work as a, as a certified financial planner when it comes to that pain or, or loss or pleasure of gain uh, type type elements
1: so I think the first thing that is important for people to understand in what I, I call a scary market is that it's normal to feel scared we're sort of wired that way we are wired and this isn't like some made up idea. Like we're wired to get more of things that give us security or pleasure and to run away as fast as we can from things that cause us pain. And that wiring has kept us alive as a species. It's really important. It's probably kept each of us alive individually, like stay out of the traffic, you know, any of those sorts of things. But what it doesn't help with is investing. Because it, it feels like the right thing to do. Of course, you're going to get out of the market when the market is scary. Of course, because that's just, I've got my hand on a burning stove. I don't care what facts or figures you give me. I'm going to take my hand off. So that's, that's sort of first just this like deep kind of empathetic hug. Like it makes sense that we're scared. All you have to do is watch the news, talk to your neighbor, you know, go to the club with your friend like you'll, and you'll hear something. But we know, we all know that buying high and selling low is a bad idea. We all know that. And when things were not scary and we were buying these investments and we talked about them, we'd be like, I'm going to hold this thing forever. I'm a long-term investor. And then as soon as it gets scary, we, we rethink that. And so the question is, how do we rewire that? And the only way I know to rewire it is so a couple of steps. Number one, like, make sure that And it's, this is a much more challenging conversation if this step isn't done. The investment portfolio you've built should be intentionally designed to help you reach a set of goals that you've clarified the science of investing, right? We, we should be broadly diversified and we should have a mix of different types of investments that when blended together will help us get to our goals. If we've, if you've taken that step, I call that investing like an adult. If we've invested like an adult, when markets get scary, that's just part of the program. It's happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future. I wish we knew a way to get out before they got scary, but we don't. It seems easy. Like just get me out before the markets go down and get me back in before they go up. But
0: it turns out it, you can't And any- sh- Can I borrow that crystal ball? Yeah, exactly. Any, any, have, you, have you got that? Have you got it there? Any, uh, any
1: charlatan that claims to know how to do that is telling stories. So that's the way I think about It's like, let's remember why we invested in the first place. If those things are still true, then the best thing you can possibly do is just turn off the news and ignore it.
0: Mm, so, so true. And and it is, it's the, the emotional drive of the markets. And again, we often, I think people who've got even a, a scientific or science background will often think, oh, yes, okay, but economies and all these sort of things, it's a social science, people. Like it's, it's not a, a real exact science. And so when, when markets start to do these things, when economies adjust, when we have inflation going up or, or again, fears of recession or then bear markets, our rational brains try and kick in. And so, uh, yeah, I guess it it really is that that human element and that emotional experience that, that we all have uh, at the end of the day. And so, Carl, I guess with that, i mean, sure, and I'll, I'll share some of the great sketches that you've done uh, around some of these concepts as well, and, and some of your blog posts. But what would you say to probably a first time investor who's uh, who's seeing there going, "Wow, I invested in December last year, and I'm now seeing my, my portfolio down, maybe ten, maybe fifteen, maybe twenty percent, depending on uh, time that they entered the market."
1: Yeah. So making an assumption that you're invested like an adult, and let's just pretend like that just means I'm broadly diversified. If you own an individual stock or an individual cryptocurrency project, I, I don't know how to help there necessarily because that's a, it's a different challenge. Because and maybe I should explain that. It's really important to understand the difference between specific, comp- what we would refer to as company specific risk right? This individual company may go bankrupt. This individual company may do really well. That's company specific risk versus systematic risk. So if we invest in the whole system, so if I own even, you know, let's just use 150, I I own 500 companies in the form of a mutual fund, even a simple index fund. If I own something with 500 companies in it, I don't need to be thinking too much about what happens to, 10 of those companies, like if 10 of those companies go under, it won't have very much of an impact on my life, right? If that whole portfolio of 500 companies goes down 20, 30, 40%, which absolutely can happen, I just know that's the system, right? That's just markets going up and down. And if I'm invested, if I'm a new investor and I've followed all the things everybody says, I bought an index fund, something passive, or, or at least I've been broadly diversified at the least, and my investment's down. I should treat that as a sale. I mean, I know it's hard because everybody else is running around like it's the end of the world. But especially if I'm young, like I want markets to go down because I get a chance to buy more at a lower cost. I mean, can you imagine, you know, walking into the Audi dealership to buy a new A4, and the salesperson says, "You're in luck. We've marked them up thirty percent." Can you imagine being excited and saying, Oh God, Oh my gosh, I'll take three. Conversely, can you imagine getting home and thinking, Oh man, I love this Audi, but my neighbor's selling his and geez, there's like other people say they don't like them. And then going back to the dealership and say, I don't care. I don't care if it's marked down 40%, just take it back. So I think if we start to understand bear market, scary market can equal big sale it's on sale. If we're diversified, then that's... And the best way to do that is to not even have to think that way. You know the best way to do that? Buy every month on the 15th or on the 1st. Just set up an automatic investment. And then you look super smart when you buy when it's low and people say you're super smart. and You can say, no, I'm just disciplined. Right. So that's the best way to do it.
0: Just have a system. Yep. Yeah, no, no, I, I love it, and I guess even for, for retirees, and, and again, that's probably conversations I've been having a, a lot at, at the moment. But we always just say have cash. Like, so if you're if you're in retirement phase, if you're in drawdown phase, have a few years worth of cash available so that you're drawing your pension or your income stream from that bucket. So you've still got your diversified bucket; it's still going to be earning money. If we go into recession, if we go into um, if this bear market keeps going on, p- companies are still making money we're still human beings. We're still spending money. So yeah, it will reset, which is one of those things. But uh, I think, yeah, in one of your articles, you do say that that rational thought is so hard. We can, we can have spreadsheets, we can have calculators, but yeah, it is really that emotional balance that uh, we really need to get in check at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, it turns out it's not about calculators and spreadsheets. It's about fear and greed.
0: Mm, Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I guess on on that, Carl, as well, so some of the stuff then around uh, the the stuff that we can control and and certainty and things. So what would you say, again, to people listening who who might go, oh, well, yeah, I just want to know. Where, where to go, what I should be doing at this time, or have you got any sort of insight uh, or, or tips when it comes to some of these sort of fear in markets or, uh, as I say, scary market elements that they can uh, practice, be it, uh, I don't know, turning the news off or, or whatever it might be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the best thing you can do and the most important foundational tool is just to have a plan in place that you understand, like, here are my thing. We call them goals. I don't love that word, but we call them goals. Like, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And, you know, it could be something as simple as like 10 years from now, I want enough money to afford my first home or to buy a vacation property or something. Well, if I have that in mind, like 10 years out, then I can say, okay, what's the best tool to help me get there? And you know, that some mix of there's some portfolio that some mix of stocks, bonds, and cash that will help me get to a goal that's 10 years away. Now I know the portfolio, let's just say it's 50% one thing and 50% another thing. Then I find the individual product to use, right? The mutual fund or the, the, whatever we, whatever we're going to use. Then I establish I'm going to save $50 a month into that account. And I set it automatically. So when things get scary, then like things are now scary, just pull that plan back out, right? Remind yourself of what you said you were going to do when you were thinking clearly. And we call that a either a statement of financial purpose or an investment policy statement. And it's just meant to be a touchstone. It's markets are going to get crazy. If you can clearly articulate beforehand how you're going to behave, like a simple piece of paper that says, here's why I'm investing this way, here's my goal. Here's what, how I'm investing, and you could even put here's what I'm going to do when markets get scary. I'm going to turn off the news. I'm going to call my brother-in-law. I'm going to call my mom. I'm going to call my financial advisor. Like whatever I'm going to do, and you follow those steps. You want like the time to learn how to use a parachute is not after you've jumped out of the plane. It's not even it's not even in the plane, right? It's on the ground. So that's the best thing you can do is just go back and remind yourself of what you said you were going to do when you were thinking clearly. And then if you feel like doing something different than that, we've even had people set up almost like a jury, you know, like a tribunal that like, if I'm going to do anything different, I have to call so-and-so and and convince them. It could just be a friend. It could be your accountant, could be a financial planner. So those are some of the things you can do to keep yourself from making. And and I just want to reemphasize, like it's a big mistake, but it's very normal. It's normal that you feel this way. So feeling it is not abnormal. It's just like, can we put some guardrails in between feeling and acting?
0: Yeah, wow. I, I love that. I think that's really key. And again, having those those conversations and pulling those elements together is really important. And Carla, I don't know if you have an opinion on this at all, but you may know our property market hasn't really had a correction or an adjustment like it did in the US. And so young people are really sort of trying to get into the property market. And it's probably a question I get fielded all the time, whether people are renting or they're, they're trying to save to, to get in. It's becoming out of reach for a lot of people. Have you got any views on how young people can look at this uh, in a current market? Like, again, prices are coming off a little bit because obviously interest rates, we look at economic theory, we say, right, if interest rates are going up, then property market should technically start to ease off a little bit. But have you got any insights for people uh, who are looking at this either on the property market side or even looking at the share market as an opportunity for for investment instead of the the property, if that makes sense? Yeah,
1: It's one of the hardest questions to answer because I mean I can answer the question, should you buy a house perfectly if you would just tell me three things. Number one, how long are you gonna stay there? What's gonna happen to interest rates, and what's gonna happen to the property market? (laughs) If you could just tell me that, I could tell you for sure whether you should buy a house. The point is nobody knows that. So I think one thing that's reasonable and I think it's reasonable. And look, we lived in New Zealand and I know a lot about the Australian property market and the New Zealand property market. And I know it's really a challenge because it doesn't, it's a little easier when we can point to 2008 and go, Hey, look, things do go down. It's kind of hard when you don't have anything in recent memory that helps remind you that things do go down. But one thing that I think is a reasonable way to think about this worldwide is just how long are you going to be there? Right. Because there's a certain just acquisition cost, independent of what happens to the value of the the value of the home you buy, it's gonna cost you something to acquire it. Right. And that typically, I don't even like thinking about buying a house unless I know I'm gonna be there three to five years at least. And that's like the beginning of the idea. Like, am I gonna own this three to five years? Because there are, still home, there are still places in the country here in the United States that haven't recovered from their 2008 levels. So three to five years. And, and I also wouldn't, I mean, gosh, it's hard to say, right? But here I, I wouldn't be too stressed about renting. You know, and, and often you can rent for less than it costs you to you know, the debt service of the house, plus the maintenance and the upkeep you take the difference and you invest in the share market and it, it like it ends up working out better for you and you have less of a headache so i also think there's another piece of the home purchasing decision that is really emotional and it's okay it's totally okay just acknowledge it if that's playing a role like for us it's really important my wife feels really strongly about owning a home and that's important that's worth something we try not to consider it an investment. We think of it as our home. And so maybe that's helpful there.
0: Yeah, and I had this conversation with my brother and his wife recently because they were they just come back from overseas and they were looking to buy and the market was high and they go oh we're buying at these ridiculous prices and I said exactly what you just said then Carl like how long are you going to be there are you going to be there more than ten years you're going to get return on investment be it lifetime uh, or lifestyle return on investment or physical return on investment as as the property holds its own value over that time so mm. yeah I think I think that's a a good answer thank you for uh, for your insights on that yeah you're welcome and uh, Carl. Well, I guess with some of that stuff as well, and probably jumping around the process here a little bit today, but I guess on on that side of purpose, and I think you said before, I want to go back to that a statement of, of intent or statement of purpose when it comes to investment, is, is that right? Do you want to uh, sort of tell us a little bit more about that and how you pull that together?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the documents I would love to see everybody, every financial planner, every client of, of a financial planner, preferably everybody, right, would have this document called a statement of financial purpose. And a statement of financial purpose is just, it sits below goals, right? Like it's before you get to goals. And one way that listeners could go through this is just to grab your spouse or a friend or somebody lead you through this conversation and just ask yourself, like, why is money important to you? Like, what is it that's important to you? And you you may say things like, Oh, freedom. And and keep asking. Go seven whys deep, as they do in the consulting world sometimes. And like, well, why is freedom important to you? Oh, flexibility. Right? Like when I was pushed, so my statement of financial purpose says time with my family, mainly outside and service in my church, in my community. That's, that's my statement. of finance. Let me give you a couple other examples. A couple that I worked with named uh, Julie and Steve. Julie was a really busy emergency room doctor. This, this story is actually in the, in the one page financial plan book. Julie was a busy emergency room doctor. Steve was a clinical psychologist. And in the conversation, Julie said, you know, like flexibility or freedom. I said, why is flexibility important? Oh, time. I just want some time. They said, well, what's important about time? Let's pretend like you you had the time, all the time you need. And we'll define that later. We'll call it a goal, but let's just pretend for a minute you're there. You have all the time you need. Why is that important? And Julie said, I just want to think about having a family. I don't even have time to think about it. Right? And so her statement of financial purpose says, I want the freedom, the flexibility to have the time to think about having a family. And let me just give you one more example. Jerry, I remember talking to Jerry, and Jerry's statement of financial purpose is really simple. I never want to be a burden to the kids. So that stuff sits below goals and it tends to change a little less often, tends to be a little more, and you can still change it, but mine hasn't changed in 20 years. It tends to change a little less often, it tends to be more enduring. And then it gives us something to build the goals on. Like for Jerry, we would say, what would it look like to not be a burden to the kids? How much money would you need? For me, well, Carl, you want to spend more time with your family outside. What is that? Let's put some framework around that. How, how often does that involve a trip? How much would those trips cost? Like, We can build our goals on top of that sense of purpose.
0: Yeah. Wow. I, I do love that. And we did a podcast episode, uh, with, with Ara Jansen, who we, we unpacked goals and I, I'm a bit triggered by that G word. I, I don't, I don't like it, but, uh, anyway, that's, that's probably, uh, yep. for, for a conversation another day. Yeah. Carl, I guess just in that, if we started the podcast today, we're talking about our, our early money memories and I, I guess just a, a question to, to, to wrap up, but if your 16 year old self had, First uh, paycheck, how would you introduce that idea of purpose? And what would your present day self suggest that you do with that first paycheck?
1: It's hard. Like, I believe the personal finance world has gone a little too far on the, you know, like save, 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 save. But I sure wish I had just decided from the very, very first dollar that I was going to save 10%. You know, just automatically 10% was going to go into a, a And I would just do the simplest, lowest cost mutual fund I could find. So in the United States, that would just be a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, 10% off the top forever. And I wish i had done a better job of that. So that's probably what I would say is like, hey, enjoy your life. Don't be too worried about the future. It's going to be fine. And what if you just automatically save 10% of that forever?
0: Yeah. I love it. I love it, and it is those, those behaviours and just starting out early can uh, can make such a, a lifetime of difference. And a bit of a shout out to Vanguard as well. I, I'm a, a big lover of uh, of index funds, so uh, yeah, we'll, we'll shout out uh, to them. Uh, they're one of the the largest index funds around. Uh, great, uh, great insight there, Carl. Thank you so much for your time. We do keep these episodes uh, short and sweet. Thanks for coming along and and joining us. Any, any parting uh, words or parting insights before we wrap up?
1: God, I just think focus on the things you can control. Like just remember, I can't control the property market. I can't control the share market, I, uh, but I can control what I read. <laughs> I can control if I listen to the news, I can control whether I buy or sell in a panic. Like if I can just focus on the things I can control, uh, I think that, and this is the right order, like we'll be happier, which is the most important part, right? And we'll also be more successful financially.
0: Fantastic. And as I say, I'll, I'll put some of the links uh, to your articles. And again, I, I love the the statement of financial purpose. Uh, and uh, I'm going to I'm gonna start uh, using that, I think, with clients as well. I love uh, I love the idea of actually setting that broader intention. Uh, we, we do a lot of the values-based stuff and, and life planning stuff that I picked up through Kinder. But I, I actually like that. Uh, very nice way of pulling it together mm. um, at the end of the day. So, look, Carl, thanks so much for your time. It's been great. Enjoy your time outdoors. Enjoy all those amazing hikes and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get you back to Australia to enjoy some of our uh, wonderful outdoors, but also uh, so you can share some of your insights here as well.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I look forward to that. We're excited to get back there soon.
0: Thanks, Carl. There's so many great insights there today. And I think the big take-homes are really around creating that intention before you start investing. I think if you've got that intent set and as Carl says, diversify broadly, make sure you've got quality assets in play. The biggest challenge and the biggest flex with the investment muscle is then staying the course as these scary markets play out. I love the statement of purpose, so start to sit back and create your own statement of purpose, what's important to you, what are those values and and even goals or, or alignments that you wanna have there. But most importantly, start that investment today and start as soon as you can. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Check us out or or rate us where you're listening, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and share this with your friends. We'll see you next time.